Welcome to Inside the Rope with David Clark, the podcast where we interview some of the leading minds in wealth management. In this episode, I'm talking with James McNabb. James is the fund manager for Equasia, a fixed interest and credit manager, uh, which is a strategy that I've used for a number of years now for clients that's had really great consistent returns. We really like Equasia due to their style, their expertise, the alignment of interests, that they've got a lot of skin in the game. Uh, I think you really enjoy James. He's uh, highly intelligent, um, his undergraduate degree in physics, uh, MBA from Columbia. He's held positions with some really impressive organizations such as ABN and UBS, you know, that's spanning Sydney, London, New York, Singapore. Real wealth of knowledge, really, really intelligent guy and someone who's been super successful uh, in his investments and served a great role in our client's portfolio. I hope you enjoy James McNabb. James, welcome to Inside the Rope. Thank you, David. James, can you start off by giving us a little bit of your background and how you came to be where you are now? Sure. Look, I started out in the markets uh, about 25 years ago, um, initially uh, working as a trader in interest rates Mm -hmm. and sort of moved through a couple of product areas and worked overseas a lot and got to some quite senior positions. Um, About halfway through, I switched from trading interest rates to trading credit and discovered that I loved it because as well as having the whole trading thing about buying and selling and whatever, you have to do a lot of credit analysis, which is an interesting discipline. So I worked for a number of banks and then about seven years ago I joined Equasia. We were newly set up um, and I started managing credit funds there. Excellent. So let, let's go back a little bit beyond that. So you know, did a little research and right. you know, I, I see that you did a degree in queuing theory and optimization. I want to know what the hell that is. How did you figure that out? Well, look, if we go back, I did a physics degree. And, um, and I, loved, I loved physics, um, and, and I still kind of have a bit of a physicist mentality, which a surprising number of people in my business do. Yeah. But um, along the way, I discovered a, a, there's a collection of techniques in applied maths called operations research, and I liked those a lot. I was really interested in them because they were interesting maths and kind of commercial as well. So I did a year postgrad at Monash in operations research, where we did optimization and queuing theory and Markov chains. And it was just, it was a lot of fun. Um, fun? It was wow. fun. <laughs> so we've established you're a super smart guy with numbers. No, I think and, what we've, and, we've and established some... that I'm a prime nerd. I think that's what, what we've got to so Okay, far. cool. But, but you've spent time uh, with UBS and you've spent time sure. internationally, New York, London, yeah. Singapore. So look, I, I transitioned into banking um, and the way that happened was uh, years ago, Macquarie Bank were advertising for someone with a finance and accounting background to do modelling in the corporate department, corporate finance department. And I, I wrote them a letter saying that they needed to get someone with a mathematics background to do it. And they they bought the story and they, and they got me into doing it. And that's how I started in finance, in banking. Okay. Yeah. Rightio. So, look, fixed interest, credit, let's helicopter up a little bit. Yeah. You know, a lot of our clients are used to property and ASX 200. Can you give that client, that listener, an explanation of fixed interest, bonds, credit? Sure, look, uh, credit is, it's a loan. 
essentially, all credit involves loans. Um, and in its simplest form, it's something like Telstra comes out to the market and they try and borrow money for five years. And they'll borrow at a particular rate, whatever that rate is. And if you own that Telstra bond, mm-hmm. then what, all that happens is along the way you get paid whatever the coupon is. If they're borrowing at 4%, I'm making that number up, then you, know, you get that interest every year. And then at the end of the five years, you get your $100 back. The only difference is if Telstra goes broke. So the only, the only sort of thing that affects the returns on those kind of bonds is credit. It's whether that thing you know, has the capacity to pay you back. And, and unlike equities where you don't sort of know where an equity ends up, so if you bought shares in Telstra, in five years' time, they're only worth what other people think they're worth because you've got to sell them in the market. If you buy a five-year Telstra bond and they haven't gone bust, it's worth $100 in five years' time, and you know that for sure. So there's a lot more, of, to me at least, there's a lot more um, sort of analysis and rigor around what you can do in credit than in equities. So as a manager of fixed interest, a manager of credit, you make your money out of the coupon? Yeah, well, look, there's, what you do is, is you try and find credits that you think are good value for what they are. So if you think, Telstra is maybe not the best example, but if you think, if you think, if you have a stronger view on Telstra than the rest of the market, then you're going to like that bond more than other people, and you can probably buy it, buy it better. Um, the kind of credits that we mostly trade aren't things like Telstra. We are very big in asset-backed and mortgage-backed. And, okay, and, so asset-backed and mortgage-backed. Yeah. So people think these are really complicated, and, and I, I think that a mortgage-backed bond is actually a really simple thing, because what it is is it's a bunch of mortgages that are all sold into a trust and strapped together. And I think with mortgages, we know what it's like to have a mortgage. And you understand how people behave with mortgages. Like if you have, you have, a, you have a job and you have a house and you make the payments and whatnot. Um, and the things that kind of make people refinance, they move, they die, all kinds of stuff like that. So you get a thousand of these mortgages together and you put them into a trust and then you, you, you slice up the risk in particular ways. and. The maths of it aren't that hard. There's a lot of legal structuring involved. But what's interesting about it is underlying it, you've got these mortgages, and each mortgage is a story. It's a person with a house Mm -hmm. and this commitment to pay for the house. And you have to understand the factors that would cause people not to pay and then what happens if they don't. And they're all sort of things that, they're all real life things. So we've, if you go out and buy a corporate bond, you're exposed to the risk, if you buy a Telstra bond, you're exposed to the risk that Telstra management does something stupid. You know, that the NBN comes, I'm stuck, or whatever, whatever it is. But when you're exposed to these thousand individual mortgage holders, unless they're all in the same town, then you've got a pretty diversified book of people whose behaviour is pretty rational. One of the things when we talk to clients about this that sort of sets off alarm bells is, you know, they've watched the... the, the big short, yeah. um, they've heard about collateralised debt offering, they've heard about the US story. Now... Am I right to talk about, well, you've got a fundamentally different market where people, if they're upside down on their mortgage, i.e. they've bought a house for a million dollars, they've borrowed a million dollars on 900,000, then the property on the property value has now fallen to 800,000, hence in the GFC, they're upside down, they've got negative mm. equity, mm. they can post the keys back. Yeah. So is that, is that a fundamental difference yeah, well, that separates that risk in the Australian market versus the US? It is, but it's not the biggest difference. And the reality is that is that if you talk to the banks about these situations, the bank, sorry, go back and say, because Australian mortgages are recourse. So if you, 
if your house is worth less than the mortgage and you default and the bank sells it and doesn't get enough money, they can come after you as an individual. Mm -hmm. The banks generally don't do that unless they think that you've done something egregious, like you've been hiding money or lying or something like that. The banks tend to let people off. So that isn't the biggest impact. The biggest difference between the US and Australian experience was around the incentives. Um, and in the US, you had a lot of people whose jobs would originate mortgages and they just got paid for volume and they weren't taking any risk. So we're really keen on seeing structures where the people who originate the mortgages and manage the credit are the first people to lose money if anything goes wrong. We love seeing that. We love seeing alignment of interest. And I think because of the way that this market works around alignment and also better regulation, we've never had, we've never had a rated Australian mortgage bond default. And even during the GFC, when there were some pretty dodgy mortgage bonds out there, some of which I know pretty well, None of them actually defaulted, so they all came money good. And I think that's around sort of the regulatory system we have here, but also the way that the incentives are built into the system. So talk to me about that incentive, because when I immediately think of that, I think about mortgage brokers out there being paid 40 basis yeah. points to arrange debt, yeah. so they're, the more the merrier, yeah. go and find me another mortgage. I think about the banks who you know, are making a lot, a lot of money yeah. in you know, residential mortgages, the bread and butter, and they're the more the merrier. Yeah. So how, how are there credit controls in that system? Yeah, look, the, the, we, we tend not to buy bank product. Uh, we're not convinced the banks do a lot of real credit work, uh, and they'll probably be fine. We, we, we tend to buy mortgages originated by specialist lenders, and yes, they do, they do pay the mortgage brokers along the way, but what we love to see in one of these transactions, I'll give you an example of someone like Pepper, mm -hmm. you know, they're a pretty big mortgage lender, I won't get into a pepper deal unless there's a significant amount of pepper money at the bottom of it. So the first people who lose money are pepper, and I know how much equity they have, and you know they're loss averse. And I like to see a significant amount of hurt money in a transaction before I'll I'll put I'll put my investors' money into it. Okay, so that's residential mortgage-backed yeah. securities. What other type of uh, securities yeah. will you trade and invest in and hold? Look, we've, we've, we have in the past held a reasonable amount of corporate securities, corporate, corporate bonds, up to about a third of the book. Right now we have zero of those. What, just, why do you have zero? Because, because they don't pay enough at the moment. So what's happened is, is there's a lot of money out there that's going into fixed income and the first place they go after bank hybrids is, is into corporate credit and that's a very tight market. We actually think the fundamentals for corporate credit are good. Um, but the pricing doesn't work for us. So we've sold all of our corporates in the last six months. So in the asset-backed space, um, we've been quite active um, in deals around cars. So there's some of the, some of the uh, car leasing companies put deals together. We don't buy the riskier pieces of those structures. Um, we're a little bit wary about the cars, but we'll buy the sort of the quite high-quality pieces. The interesting development for us in the last 18 months has been we have in our own right been able to go into transactions by ourselves. So we are providers of money um, to people who are, who are doing leasing deals. Um, and in those transactions, we're often the most senior lender, so we control the deal. So what happens is we'll find someone or someone will find us and they've been in business for a few years, they've got a leasing business at a particular niche that we think is interesting and that we like the management. So the, the underlying assets, equipment, fit-outs, computers? All, all kinds of stuff. Um, um, and then what we will do is we will go in with them and we will be the senior lender into them. Um, and we'll control the transaction that way. Our 
our idea is when that thing gets big enough, we'll get a real bank to come in and be the senior funder and we'll sort of be in the middle, the mezzanine space, which I think is better for us. What we like about those deals is we can grow with the company. So it has to be someone we're comfortable being in a transaction with for a few years. We like to know who the management is. We like to know how much money they've personally got at stake in the deal. Mm -hmm. Very important to us. Alignment of interest again. Very important to us Mm -hmm. that if something goes wrong, that the first people who lose all the money are the people who run the company, you know, before our investors start to do their dough. Um, You know, we we know these individuals. We know how much money they've got at stake. that's pretty compelling for us. So look, that gives us the ability to, to find assets that don't really exist in the market anywhere else. And I think one of the things that people pay us to do is to find stuff that they can't find for themselves. And, and the risk on those type of transactions is what the, the book or the, the, the people who are leasing that yeah. um, don't repay it. Absolutely. And so look, what, what we do with that is we rely on a few things. You rely on the... You rely on the the ability of the people who are managing that company to originate good credit and to service the credit. Because it's not enough to put a loan on. You've got to have a real discipline process about following up. So if somebody doesn't pay a lease payment, you know, the next day you want someone ringing them up. And there's a whole sort of quite, quite structured setup of the way that these things are managed. So you want to make sure that they can do that. Um, we also make sure there's a lot of their money below us, we trap all the excess cash that comes into the transaction. So look, we have we have our feet on all the controls in this kind of deal. It's a nice space for us to be in. So tell me, if you go on a week's holiday, um, you get one phone call, you're on this island in Fiji, you ring back to the office. What are the three things you ask them that you want to know about the business to be able to track it and what's happening to get your finger on the pulse? the three critical you mean, things you ask about? You mean the leasing business or, 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 or the fund? Oh, the fund. The fund. Yeah. Oh, I'd ask about whether we've had any, uh, um, what money's come in and out of the fund. Yeah. Because that's really interesting for me because one of the things I have to manage is, is liquidity. Okay. So we say to investors, you can get out any month uh, with, I think, 10 business days notice and I need to just sort of see what our cash balances are like. So... And actually, so, the, so you don't want too much sitting on the sideline, but you yeah. need a little bit of a buffer. And I need to kind of know how much is coming in. So there's deals going on all the time. I need to be able to plan a bit. So the first thing, I, literally the first thing I do in the morning when I get to the office is I go into our bank account and I write down on my little diary how much money has come into our accounts, you know, and what our position is. And then I'll sketch out the next few days of I've got, you know, I've got some money going out tomorrow, buying a bond tomorrow. There's a settlement on Friday, just making sure that there's enough money there and I keep, I keep in the back of mind, are there any redemptions coming through? So a lot of it's around just really old fashioned managing cash. Mm-hmm. So a lot of that's what I, what I do. Um, what else are you going to ask them? You've got your inflows, your outflows, outflows. What, what, what's key? Is there anything else key? Is that the main thing? Gossip, just what's going on? You know, who's doing what? Is there, is there any word going around the street about anything? I'm really keen, really keen on just gathering intelligence and it's an, it's an information business. Um, and a lot of it is around just keeping your finger on the pulse, you know. And at any, at any given time, I'll have, I'll be working on a couple of new deals and I want to sort of find out what the next thing. If I'm on an island in Fiji, I'll almost certainly be ringing in more than once a day because it, it, I need to be on top of everything. Okay. With our conversations with clients, typically this type of asset represents a more conservative part yeah. of their portfolio. Typically... Uh, we would talk to clients about growth assets where you know, you've got equities and you know, capital movements. Um, and t- typically and historically, 
you know, I think wealth advisors have talked about, you know, this fitting into that conservative, mm. um, that part of the portfolio. What, what do you see the role of these type of assets in a portfolio for clients? It's defensive. You know, it's, it's a, we think of it as a defensive alternative. So it's, you're not going to double your money in fixed income, in credit. I mean, if you put in $100, it's not going to be $200 in a year's time. Um, but what we like to think is it's not going to go up and down a lot in value. So, I mean, what we hope will happen is that if the market hits turbulence and you start seeing a lot of red come up in statements, we're still going to be like in black. And I think that's what, we, what we've been doing. Yeah. It's consistent returns. And what sort of, in this environment, what sort of return expectations do you think are reasonable for end clients? I think at a sort of a, at a defensive fixed income, mid, mid to high single digits. I mean, we're currently tracking 6.3 or something. I think, that's a, that's a, I think that's a very good outcome. I think anything over five in this environment for the kind of risk we're taking is, is great. Talking about this environment, what do you see are these key characteristics? And we're getting lots of people talking about, well, you know, things are overvalued and yeah. risks heightening. I think there's some articles the last couple of yeah. days about bubbles and so forth. You know, what's your view of the environment at the moment for this type of asset class? Yeah, look, the first thing, as a credit manager, the first thing I think about is credit worthiness. So if, if I'm buying that hypothetical Telstra bond, the, first thing, the only thing I think about really is, is Telstra going to go bust? And I think credit conditions are pretty benign. Um, it's hard to see that anything um, around the corner that's going to tip everything over. We worry a lot about unemployment. I can't really see a spike in unemployment coming up. So that's, the, that's for us the, the, the biggest worry. Um, look, and I think about the market. We're in, a, we're in a mark-to-market paradigm. So, you know, my first port of call is, 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 is my portfolio credit worthy? Right. And am I going to get the returns I want over time just by having a hell of a position? Is anything going to go by? bust? First question. Then I think about the market. Are things too tight? And we do things around that. So, you know, we sold all the corporates. Corporates are too tight. I think there's still really good value in those sectors we're in, the mortgage banks and asset banks. Um, but with spreads being tight, I'll, I'll just pull back on the risk a bit because I think there's a bit more chance of it selling off than there is of it going tighter. I've been wrong for the last four months on that, but you know we're still making really good returns out of it. So I'm, I'm happy to take that position. You made the comment there we're mark to market yeah. and spreads of time. Can you just elaborate sure. for our listeners yeah, no, what that enough. means to your returns and what you're yeah. doing there? Yeah. The way that the way that bonds in general work is as interest rates go down, prices go up, um, and it's true for credit as well. Spread, credit spreads tighten, prices go up. So we're kind of exposed to the risk that credit spreads move out. So, for instance, if I think, um, oh, if I buy a piece of bank paper and it's 100 basis points over cash and then it, the market rate price is 150, that, that piece of paper is going to get cheaper. Right? So uh, I'm sensitive to that. Uh, the way we manage that is I don't want to think a lot about where the market's going, because I'm not really a trader these days. We're sort of a fundamental investor. So I keep the, I keep the length of the book reasonably short. We're a bit under two years. Mm-hmm. And that's designed so that if credit spreads do start moving out, we don't take too much of a hit on that. And we saw that early last year. Early last year, credit was selling off. Everything was selling off, sort of January, February, March last year. And we 
manage to stay positive, and I think well, most other funds were negative. And that's about us just being conservative. So typically, your return will comprise of the coupon, and also how the mark to market yeah. changes. In yeah. that. And what what sort of breakup in your say six percent in the last year yeah. has been attributable to those two things? Oh, look, the the vast majority of it is the coupon. So the way we set up the book is to generate the return we. We say it's a cash plus three investment. So we set it up to generate that cash plus three just off the coupons and the performance of the book. Mm -hmm. um, we will position ourselves to do a bit better than that if we see some opportunities. Um, so most of that return has been coupon. And, uh, and what I like about that is it's, that's a sustainable return. Yeah. yeah. So I think clients and people listening are very interested to, to know, you know, in a worst case scenario, they understand you know, my Commonwealth Bank shares may go from 80 bucks to $26 yeah. like they did in the GFC. Um, what can they expect in, you know, a large shock to the system, mm. a large fall, a large, you know, if you have, you know, Trump and North Korea come out throwing, you know, rockets yeah. around, um, what does the downside look like for an investor in this area? Yeah, look, we, we, uh, we think about that because we went, went through the GFC. Um, and if, this, if the same GFC happened, and of course it'll be different next time, but if yeah. the same GFC happened, I've got a pretty good sense for where the portfolio goes. And, and one thing we do around that is we double the credit spreads and everything and, and we lose about 10% of the fund's value. Mm -hmm. But what's interesting about that is, is it resets the fund with a much higher um, return on it. So we actually make it back within a year. Um, and that's one little test we do at Investment Committee just to make sure that we can withstand these kinds of pressures. And, and is that what you saw during the GFC when you were running the money? I wasn't running this exact fund during okay. the GFC. I had, a, I had other portfolios that were similar. So I've got a really good sense for where the, the assets I have, where they went. Sure. Um, and also, I mean, the other the great thing about the GFC was it turns out with the benefit of hindsight, it was a great time to buy stuff if you knew what you were doing. Mm -hmm. um, and we caught the tailwinds, but we set up our first credit fund in 2010 um, and we made phenomenal returns. We made like in, in the 30s as an IRR on some of these assets. And it was around recognising what's credit good. The GFC was about liquidity in Australia more than it was about credit. There, weren't, there wasn't much bad credit, but there are a lot of people who were forced to sell stuff that was good. And the trick was to be there with cash. If there's another GFC, we'll be ready. We have no to do. What are the biggest mistakes you see investors make? Um, investors, I, I think people people fall in love with positions. Um, people think about what they paid for something and they want it to get back to that level, and that that never makes any sense because what you paid for it was in, was in the past. And does um, that also work the other way around? I.e., they they sell assets just because they've gone up even though they may represent great value at that point? I think that's, that's, that's less of a problem. Because uh, okay. when I started out really early in this business, someone said no one ever went broke taking profits. Okay. But the question is not how you, the trick is not how you Sounds like my grandfather. Thing. I can remember him yeah. saying that yeah. exactly yeah. to yeah. me. Yeah. Uh, and there's a lot of this sort of homespun stuff. Um, the other ones are uh, if you just hold something because you hope it's going to get better. I mean, that's, that's not enough of a reason. You have to be really disciplined, and that's why... When you do this all day, every day, you sort of you learn to cast aside some of these biases and just try and look at everything and just say, if I was, if I had a blank slate, would I buy this bond at the price I've got it marked at? You know? 
conceptually in, in our book, everything's for sale all the time. So, you know, I come in every day and I think to myself, if I look at, you know, the, the Telstra bond we're talking about, you know, would I buy it or sell it today at the, at the price I've got it? And you have to think not about whether you already own it, but kind of if you were just doing it from scratch. So circling back to that environment and the environment going forward, and you said there were some great tailwinds 2010 when you set up and you were able to buy some great great assets at really depressed prices. Yeah. How are you thinking about things now and the outlook moving forward? There's a couple of things there. I think the general credit outlook is pretty benign. So the economy is kind of okay, but it's not fabulous, but it's not terrible either. We worry about unemployment. We don't really see that spiking. So I think on the one hand, you've got this generally pretty favourable credit outlook. Um, you've also got the thing that gets us excited a lot is you've got a lot of changes happening with the banks. So with regulatory pressure, the banks are having to sell assets. And we sort of see that in some of their reporting. There's things coming off the bank's balance sheets. So this um, is creating opportunities where the banks, for prudential reasons, have to sell have to get things out. Yeah, so things, things that the banks would otherwise love to hang on to, but they have to sell on. And it creates a really good, it creates opportunities for people like us. So look, we say it's a great time to be a credit manager. Because in the next you know couple of years, there's a lot more stuff coming out, and there'll be more opportunities. So will that involve use. different instruments? You know, you talked about residential backed. Um, you know, some of the leasing backed securities. Do you think there'll be other sort of securities yeah, we're, that we're you'll move it, into? We're seeing it already in some of the transactions we're doing, where people people are stepping into the space where the banks are exiting, and we are part of that process. Fantastic, James. Look, that's been a great overview. Really. Interesting and good right. stuff there. So thank you very much. You know, I could talk about this all day. I know you can. Oh um, and and uh, you know, as exciting as it is, <laughs> we'll we'll leave that one there. I reckon for all right. for, for our listeners. So thank you very much for your time. Appreciate it. Thanks, Dave. Cheers. Thank you for listening to Inside the Rope with David Clark. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. You can connect with David by visiting codacapital.com. Any views expressed in this recording represent the personal opinions of the speaker and do not represent the view of any other party. If this recording contains reference to any financial products, that reference does not constitute advice or recommendation and may not be relied upon. Listeners in Australia are encouraged to visit www.moneysmart.gov.au to obtain information regarding financial advice and investments.